This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. It's somewhat predictable on a, a day like this that I preach on the resurrection. And I've had quite a few different resurrection morning sermons over the years and uh, ones that have struck me very deeply and are meditations that are just so profound. And uh, the one I'm bringing today is somewhat of a surprising one uh, because the, the idea of resurrection, I, I remember one teacher saying this uh, when I was around 18 years old, I heard this and it's, I've never lost sight of it. It's had a great impact on my life. We want resurrection life, but most of us fail to realize that there's a cross between us and it. And if we try and go around the cross, we try and skip the cross, we will not find that life. And I tell you what, that sank deeply in my understanding from a young age, in my understanding, my comprehension of how Christianity works, is that resurrection life is on the far side of suffering, the far side of self-denial, the far side of giving up life as we know it. And so to cherish life, oftentimes we need to recognize that our life stands in the way of capital L life. We have a lowercase l life that we live, and that's what confuses us. When someone says that we're dead in our sin, they're like, I feel very much alive. But you have a lowercase l life, and without the capital L life of Jesus Christ, you are dead spiritually. It's, it's like de- darkness and death are paralleled in, in a very strange way, and that is that they are, there's no material substance in them. Death is merely the absence of something, and that's life. And light and darkness are opposite one another, and darkness is merely the, ab- op- the absence of light. It's, there's no measurement to darkness. But when you remove life and you remove light, what you have is what remains, and that's where we are outside of Jesus Christ. So we can feel mortally alive, but spiritually we are dead men walking. And to find that life that we crave, we desire to have this life. And that's why you see men and explorers throughout history that have looked for some pool that they could drink from that would give them uh, everlasting life. Somehow they would live on. There is some craving deep in the wiring of humanity that craves life, capital L life, but has no idea how to find it. We do. And in fact, I could say personally, I have found it. And so to have a meditation on this life, I, I almost feel is too great for any man to possibly deliver anything that would be worthy of what Christ has done. But I guess that's the whole Christian life. What do we represent? Jesus. It's like, what man is worthy to carry the name of Jesus and call himself a Christian? What man or woman is worthy to actually go into this world and declare that we represent him? 
And so I guess it's just sort of that feeling. It's a good feeling. It's, it's very humbling when you recognize that I am unable in and of myself to do anything that would benefit you. But if I'm a flow-through channel for the living God, he can bring life to you in and through what takes place this morning. The narrow way of life and the three days of difficulty that every true saint must traverse. So I put three days of difficulty in quotations because it's, it's an idea. It's a concept that is brought out in Scripture. Three days is all over the place in Scripture. So before Christ is laid in that grave for three days, the idea of three days of difficulty is replete in Scripture. In other words, it's a foreshadow. I taught my, my kids the idea of foreshadows in stories and in movies. It's, and so I'd say, hey, guys, that was a foreshadow. And so now it, my kids will yell out, foreshadow, uh, at uh, very inopportune times. It's like, yeah, but you're not supposed to say it's a foreshadow. You're just supposed to notate that. And so in the Old Testament, there's a foreshadow of three days of difficulty. And it's incredible how Christ, in so many regards, fulfills Scripture. And even fulfilling what we would understand as the three days of difficulty. The three days of darkness, where it appears that darkness has the upper hand. It appears that darkness is won. It appears that God has lost. It appears that all hope is gone. And yet, you see, that's the beauty of the resurrection. It wasn't just that he died and then his eyes popped back open. Is that he dies, is taken down from that cross, is wrapped in linens and ointments, and then placed in a grave. And because of the rumors that had passed that this man had proclaimed that he would rise from the dead, they do something so over and above what would be normal for a human being when he's buried. Humongous stone placed in front of that grave, and then they stick a soldier watch in front of it. In other words, this guy is not going to rise from the dead if men have anything to do with it. But men don't have anything to do with it. This is a work of God. So he drove out the man, speaking of Adam, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden in a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's this tree of life, and there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have two trees in the midst of the garden. There was a lot of other trees, but there are two trees that God points out. And for whatever reason, Adam and Eve eat from the tree that they're not supposed to. Meanwhile, there's this tree called the tree of life sitting right there. And if we're thinking people, what, what are we going to tell Adam and Eve? How about you obey God, and you don't eat from that tree, and you eat from the tree of life? Yeah. You see, two trees. And how many of us could receive the same lecture? You see, there's two trees in our life. And a tree in Scripture is a place of decision. It's a place of judgment. Anyone who hangs upon a tree is accursed. And so what we have in the Old Testament is this picture right from the very beginning, a place of decision, where you could almost see Adam and Eve standing between two trees, life and obedience, disobedience and death. The law of sin and death is basically you sin, you die. Adam and Eve were told the day in which, which they would eat of the fruit of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. I, I mean, to me, it's, it's rather logical, right? However, we have a temperament that obviously, and a countenance that can be baited and tempted, as has been proven in each of our lives. And each one of us, in our own turn, has eaten from this first tree. 
It wasn't just that we inherited a corruption, it's that we have participated in a corruption. And we have willfully disobeyed God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's a second tree, and the second tree functions after a higher law. And you see, lest Adam and Eve eat from that tree of life and stay in this condition of death forever, they are driven out from the garden and cherubim block the way. I want to emphasize two words, the way. You see, as Jesus said when he came to this earth, I am the way. Now we know that in John 14, 6, it says more than that. He's the truth. He's the life. And there's no other, he's the only means by which we can access the Father. However, I want to emphasize this one because it shouldn't be lost. He is the way. There is a, a, a channel, a, a pathway to get to heaven, to get to that life. You know what this tree of life is? We understand it as the cross. And unless you eat of this tree, the first tree, and if you eat of it, you die. But unless you eat of this tree of life, the cross, you can have no life in you. If you sin, you die. But if you believe... You live. You see, there's two laws. You sin, you die. The law of sin and death. The law of believe and live. The law of believe and live is a higher law. Sort of like the law of aerodynamics is to gravity. So if you heed the law of aerodynamics, even though gravity presses against you, you fly. And the same is true with believe and live. When you believe and live, though you have sinned and you are deserving of death... You can have life. So enter by the narrow gate, says Jesus, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So there's a way that leads to life, and that way is narrow and difficult. Now, most of us don't prefer our Christianity served up with such notions. However, this is the way Jesus Christ served up the truth when he delivered it. He is that way. He is that truth. He is that life. And when that way, truth, and life came to bring us to the Father, he said, this is the way you get there. And when he introduced it to us, he said, narrow is the gate. The word narrow means a way of difficulty and compression. It's like being pressed against. And difficult is the way. Could you imagine if someone said, what is the way to the Father? Well, its name is difficult. The name of that way is difficult. So we have a difficult pathway that we must traverse in order to access the kingdom of heaven. Now, I recognize that doesn't sound all joyful on resurrection morning. However, that's part of the beauty of it. Unless you understand the dying, you don't fully understand the living. It's like giving the good news without first telling the bad news. If you're not told the bad news, the good news makes no sense. If someone came to you and said, yes, we have the cure for your disease. It's like, well, I have no sickness. You see, there's nothing beautiful about hearing that there's a cure for a disease that you don't believe you have. In fact, you're just offended that someone thinks that you're diseased. When in actuality, you must hear the bad news and be awakened by it and stirred to recognize that you do have a disease and that the cure has come. So there are twos, just like you said, two trees. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat of it, you die. And then you have the tree of life 
that unless you eat of it, you cannot live. Well, we have Adam and we have Jesus. All of us are descendants of Adam. And Adam is under a just penalty of law. It's called condemnation. He deserves death. And all of us have inherited this disposition. We are in Adam. And so this concept of inheritance, in heir, you've heard the word heir. An heir is one who receives that from a previous generation. We are heirs of Adam. We have inherited his disposition of sin. And so therefore, as long as we remain in Adam, we die. We are eaters of the first tree. But if we repent and believe in Christ Jesus, we exit Adam and we enter into Christ. We enter into his work on the cross. We share in his life. Now, it's very important to recognize that to share in his life and his victory, which most of us know we want to finish the story before we actually enter the story. When you enter into Christ, you enter into more than just his life. You enter into his dying. You enter into his burial. You enter into his afflictions, his death. You see, if I am in Christ, what's your position? If you are in Christ, you are therefore his sufferings are your sufferings, his affliction, your affliction, his death, your death, his burial, your burial. Now I know there's more to the story, but I want to reflect upon this for a second. That if you are going to find life, you must allow this part of the gospel story to be brought to the surface. That you must give up your life. Most of us want Christianity served up the way we want to hear it. Peace and joy. Okay, tell me more. Plenty. Prosperity. Yes. Eternal life. Oh, I love this. You see, these are all truths, but they are truths that need a compliment. That the way you find life is through death. You must first forsake your life so that you can now receive it. The illustration I oftentimes give is that glass full of polluted water. And Jesus says, I have living water for you. And they were like, okay, just pour it on top. He says, no, if you're going to receive it, you first need to dump out what's in there. You see, we don't like that part. If you want to gain that treasure that is buried in the field, what do you need to do? Go and sell all. We don't like that. We want to hold on to our all and then tack on God's all on top of it. But the way to get God's all is you must forsake your all. So just as we're beginning this journey today, I want you to freshly evaluate if this is the sort of Christ you want to follow. Because the Christ that I'm going to describe to you is the Christ of Scripture. He is not one that just sets you up to have an easy existence. He's one that sets you up to live abundantly. And the way in which we live abundantly doesn't match our natural Adam-like thinking. Adam wants pleasure. He wants comfort. He wants ease. Jesus is setting you free to fully find life. But to find it, you must relinquish your life as you now know it. You have a small L life and you're clinging to it. Each one of us in here has to come to that place where we let go and give up our small L life in order that we can receive the capital L life of Jesus Christ. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? The word baptized is baptizo, which means to be put in or immersed into something. The illustration in scripture is a cucumber being immersed in vinegar and it becomes a new food. 
It becomes a pickle. And this is actually the Greek understanding of this word. So we are put in to Christ. It's not just that we're going in and out of water. It's that we are put into Christ. How? By faith. You see, you were in Adam, but you put off Adam. You repented and believed, and you entered into Christ. You were baptized into Christ. And do you not know that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized or you were put into his death? It's very important to recognize that there's a part of you, it's called the old man, that must die. And unless that old man dies, you will continue to be controlled by that old Adam nature that desires comfort and pleasure and fleshly uh, satisfaction instead of what God desires for your life. But you have a secret avenue of accessing that death. It's not you going out and dying on a cross. It's you entering into his work on that cross 2,000 years ago by faith. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Death comes before life. What have we gotten ourselves into? Now, some, some people believe in Christ and they come forward at some type of crusade and they pray a prayer but they may not understand what they've gotten themselves into. What does it mean to be a Christian? I've oftentimes said that every single one of us in this world has trials. Christians get bonus ones. You see, we don't just have the sinful world that we live in, but we have all hell that wants to oppose anyone that would side with all heaven. And so as a result, we don't just have the normal stuff, you know, the the thorns, the prickles, the thistle, the stuff that just gets all of us, but we get the bonus stuff, all the demonic hosts going, hey, what do you think you're doing? Hey, that's not very fun. That, you see, that comes with the, the whole story that we are entering into. We're entering into the grand drama, the grand sufferings of the Messiah. So let's think about, what, what's your position? He, Christ, the one you're in, is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. You see, what you're seeing is a pattern of the life that you are being grafted into. Now, there's a whole bunch of triumphant verses I could read here. And it's like, yeah, now that's the Christ that I'm in. However, to enter into the fullness of Christ, you have to recognize that the cross is the avenue. There is no other way into that eternal kingdom that everlasting life, then through this narrow channel, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. It is a way that isn't attractive and that's why it says fewer those who find it. And I've oftentimes made the comment because fewer those who want to find it. I didn't see that. I, I, I think the broad way is perfectly fine for me. Narrow way, a way of difficulty, a way of compression. I don't want that. You see, Adam doesn't want that, which is why you need to die to Adam. You need to give up Adam and begin to allow Jesus to do your thinking for you. Jesus to do your living for you. Because he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. You see, you are a Christian. You are one who is the body of Christ. And just as Jesus laid down his life that others would find it. So you were being commissioned to model the life of Christ and to gladly lay down your life. And even when you're falsely accused to not open your mouth, you are entering into a different way of thinking, a different way of living, a different way of acting. The strange three day journey when all seems backwards, dark, 
and lost. Now, it's hard because we know the end of the story. However, if you were living in that time period and you believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and then you see him turned over into the hands of sinners, you know that up to that point, up up before Gethsemane, the time of Gethsemane when the the soldiers uh, arrested him, that no man could lay hands on him? They literally, he just walked right through the crowds. They're like, they could not get them. They were conspiring to catch him and to kill him, but they could not get him. You see, Jesus wasn't taken. He gave himself. That, to recognize what we are entering into, this life of the Messiah, when he goes to that cross, I I can't imagine what it would have been like for his disciples, what it would have been like for his mother in that situation, the the torment of their soul, the, the questioning of everything that they believe, because it looks like hell has the upper hand. The Messiah, almighty God, is allowing himself to be scourged and beaten and mocked and pummeled, and they're publicly humiliating him. And not only that, but he breathes his last and dies. Could you just imagine what you would be going through in such a circumstance to try and fathom? How could this be God? How could this be our Messiah? So we have betrayal, false accusations, scourging, crucifixion, death, burial. By the way, I'm showing you something you're familiar with. It's typically called the passion of the Christ. However, you recognize that you're entering into this, right? That you're entering into this journey called Christianity. And this is not all that different than what we are promised in the New Testament. Isn't that a strange thought? You see, we're entering into the life of Christ. Stone rolled in front. Silence, silence, silence. That's a difficult three days. That's a really hard passage of time. I don't know what you're going through in life right now, but a lot of us consider it strange when we face trials of many kinds. Even though scripture goes out of its way to say, hey guys, don't consider it strange when you face trials of many kinds. Isn't that funny? But we still consider it strange. Why is it that we consider it strange when we go through our own three-day test? You see, many of us think, God has forgotten me. God has forsaken me. Has God forsaken anyone in this story? No. In fact, before we even get to this story, he goes out of his way to clarify exactly what's going to happen. You know that he's already clarified to you exactly what's going to happen in your life? So even though it's gone dark and even though it seems like God has gone silent, guess what? He hasn't. You see, though we need to walk through and traverse these dark stretches in our life where it appears at first blush that God has lost, that God has forgotten, that God has lost his strength. He just happened to lose it right on your watch. So right when you needed it, God sort of fumbled the ball. Hey God, what about me? God has not fumbled the ball. God has not forsaken you. God has not forgotten you. This is part of what every Christian must walk through. So, a few questions. Can God lie? According to Scripture, He can't, right? Has God promised? This is two of the things that I will go through in my own soul constantly. Can God lie? No, God. You cannot lie. I know you cannot lie, and I I know you've given me promise. He didn't have to give us promise, but He did. He has given us promises that we can build our life upon. 
So look at this. The word of God on the matter. I just went through all this betrayal, scourging, all this terrible stuff. Silence, silence, silence. Do you know that we have the word of, the God, word of God on the matter? So let's put ourselves right smack in the middle of those three days of silence, silence, silence. And say, okay, can God lie? No, he can't. Has God promised? Yes, he has. What did he promise? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Okay, we have the word of God on the matter. You see, just like you do in your current circumstance right now, I know it may appear that all has gone dark. It may appear that God has forgotten you. However, God has not forgotten and he will never forsake you. God is a promise-keeping God. He said it and he will do it. Now, you see, you look back in history and you go, and if I were to say, okay, I want to put some wagers out there. How many of you think Jesus is going to rise again on the third day? I mean, he said he's going to, how many of you think he's going to? Well, every single one of us is going to put our entire fortune on it. Like what are the odds? What am I going to get out of this? You see, we know it because it's past tense. He's already risen. However, what if we were to take your current circumstance right now and say, what are the odds that God's going to fail you or God's going to be victorious? How about we all stick our entire life and fortune on the fact that God will be faithful because he cannot help but be faithful. This is who he is. So the resurrection is the essence of God's faithfulness being expressed. The godness of God showcasing itself before all men. So, you know that the word of the devil is always uh, given in each... Uh, some of you are walking through it right now. You go through that dark season and the devil starts talking too. It, right when God goes silent, you ever notice the devil gets really loud? Yeah, and he has a lot to say. In fact, it seems like, uh, if, if you could say it, that he never stops talking. The guy has one of those serious uh, talking issues. Sir? We remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. You see, there's another voice that is calling him a deceiver. That is saying, oh, and he said this. Oh, yeah. Oh, are you one of those Christians that actually believes God's faithful? Are you one of those guys? You see, the devil is sticking a big stone in front of your life. And he's putting an armed guard there to make sure that God doesn't come through for you. He's laboring hard to try and refute the reality of God in your life. Do you know that we have an enemy that does that? He literally desires, he craves to try and remove the credibility of God from your life and understanding. And so he will stick an armed guard out there. He will stick a big stone in front of you. He will try and obstruct with everything he has. However, we serve a God of resurrection life. How are you going to handle the three-day test? So I'm going to give you some samplings of the Old Testament of three-day tests. And one thing you're going to recognize is every single one of these three-day tests is what we go through all the time. It's amazing, but this is the foreshadow in the Old Testament. This is bringing us into the ultimate three-day test known as the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. So let's start with the three days of Christ were long ago foretold. So we're going to call this the three-day are you willing test. Three days to Mount Moriah, and it's time for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. 
Now, this is Genesis 22. This is a, if any of you have ever studied this story, we know it's obvious if you know Jesus Christ that this is a picture of a father laying down the life of his son. And then we see in that bush, we see the ram that's caught in the thicket. We see the alternate sacrifice. Instead of Abraham giving up Isaac, God has supplied the ram. That's Jesus. I mean, it's so obvious to any one of us that know Christ, right? However, this is a story that foretells something, and it's a three-day test. Could you imagine what this father went through? This is a, a man who has struggled greatly in his life to even rise up to that point where he is a man of faith. And then God supernaturally supplies this heir, this son. This is like a big deal to Abraham. It's a big deal to all history. And then God puts his finger on Isaac and says... I need you to sacrifice him. Oh, so right now, just allow God to find that one spot in your life, you know, that you're clinging to. I've had various spots in my life, my dreams, my ambitions, my desires, my designs, uh, my talents, my cravings. You know, I, you know, you have these plans, like your job or, you know, the, the person you want to marry, uh, the way you want life to turn out. There's all sorts of Isaacs that God may have even given you. But to allow God to touch that and to say, who's first? Are you willing to freshly lay that down? Oh, that, that's, a, that's a rather soft spot there. There's a little pain that goes with that. And yet, it's one of the greatest things we can ever walk through in our Christian life to freshly come to Mount Moriah and to say, God, you're higher. So with this, I'll call it a gospel question. Are you willing to give up that which is most precious to you to follow Jesus Christ? Remember the rich young ruler? He, like, he had all the right answers, but then Jesus picked his Isaac and says, would you lay it down? And the guy went away sorrowfully. You see, we're in that same crux position where Jesus comes to us with the power of his gospel. says, you want to live? You want life abundant? Yes, I do. Then lay that down. Come follow me. Oh, You see, we need to give up those small L, those lowercase L issues in our life so that we can find the capital L. The three-day will you buckle test. Three days, you have the Passover, which again is an incredible picture of the cross. The shed blood uh, of the lamb is put on the doorpost of every house in Israel. And the firstborn uh, of all of Egypt is uh, is killed by the, the, the death angel. And then we have a three-day journey to the edge of impossibility. And I, I, have, I, I reflect upon the edge of the Red Sea almost continually in my spiritual walk. I feel like God has built me a house at the, at the edge of the Red Sea where that's most of my life is in this zone of impossibility. You have the most powerful military force, the Egyptians, and they're mad, and they're coming against you on one side. Then you have mountains on either side, and you have a sea on the other. You are surrounded with the impossible. There's nothing you can do, well, that is except for believe. Believe that the God who promised to deliver you will, in fact, deliver you. But all is going dark. Why does God allow these situations? You ever had that thought? It's like, God, why don't you just part the Red Sea before the Egyptians even awaken to the fact that we're having troubles here and we're stuck? Prove yourself to them long before we even get to this point as opposed to seeing them. They're like, oh, they're stuck. Hey, let's get them back. And they come rumbling out there in their chariots and their horses. I mean, these guys are, are angry. They're ready to get their slaves back. 
God. You didn't have to get us stuck here. And yet, that three-day test is exactly what each of us needs. The testimony of God grows larger through the three-day test. Every single one of us in Adam would skip every three-day test that would ever come our way. But in Christ, we rejoice, though sometimes a little weakly, in the fact that, God, you will turn even this to your glory. Oh, by the way, for those of you that don't know the story, God parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. Then the sea, when the Egyptians were like, hey, I don't know how this thing works, but let's go through and get them. Then God swallows them up in the same water. That's good. Okay, that's, that's the end of a three-day test. It's life. The gospel question, can God fail you? Is it not true that he is faithful to his word and that it is impossible for him to lie? Is there ever a time when it is reasonable to despair? Can you find one time in life where it's reasonable? It's logical to despair. Despair is to forsake faith in God. It's to say, God will not come through for me. Is there ever a time? God is faithful. I know your circumstances may look dark. I know you, it may feel like God has forgotten you, but he has not. Let the word of God crescendo in your soul this morning to remember he is a God who promises before you enter the test that he will faithfully end that test with a greater glory. The three-day bitter waters test. These guys, I mean, they, they had some challenges, these Israelites. They get done with the Egyptians, right? And then they have a three-day journey from the edge of the Red Sea without any water. These guys are not doing so hot. And they're starting to grumble. You know the Israelites. They're famous for that. But so are we. Okay, we oftentimes look at the Israelites when they grumble in their little three-day test. And we're like, what's wrong with those guys? And we fail to recognize how similar we are. That when we function with an Adam-like thought process, then we say, God, why would you do this to me? Instead of, God, I know you have something that you're going to pull off here. You see, one is marked by faith. The other is marked by discouragement and despair. So the three-day journeys with no water, and then they finally find some water, and guess what? It's bitter, which is why they called it Mara, which means bitter. So this is, I mean, it's almost like a temptation there. However, Moses is given a solution. He takes a tree. Remember a tree? A tree? I mean, this, this is, these all are incredible pictures of the cross. Every single one of them is a picture of Christ. And he throws the tree in the water and turns it sweet. Okay? Uh, guys, do you not need any more? I could just make that the message right there. You have some bitter waters in your life? Hey, there's a tree. Let that tree be thrown into those bitter waters in your life and you will see it converted into sweet waters. The gospel question, will he not turn this bitterness into sweetness? He will. The three-day, are you ready to try the impossible test? Now, most of us, if we're asked that question, are like, no, 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 thank you. I'll let someone else do that. I don't want to have to try the impossible. Give me possible things, God. But God relishes sticking us in impossible situations. Why? So that he gets the glory. Because with man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. How does God get his glory unless he allows us into those impossible straits? So in three days, the Israelites are heading across the Jordan out against the giants. They're warned three days in advance to get everything prepared. Talk about a three-day period. Okay, uh, like we're brick makers. 
And they're, they're, they're like warring nations. There's 31 hostile nations on the other side of the Jordan. Okay, uh, so we got some issues here. We got giants, uh, and to us, uh, they, they, we feel like grasshoppers. And they have walled cities that reach up to the heavens. Okay, you ever have a situation like that where you're staring at an impossible challenge? And yet, has not God promised before you even arrived in this situation exactly how it's going to go if you'll simply trust him? You see, most of us forget the word of God right now. When it goes dark, we get blurry-eyed. Instead of recognizing he's already promised. He's already told us, hey, look, I'm delivering you out of Egypt so that I could bring you into the land of promise. I'm going to bring you into the land of promise. There is no weapon that is fashioned against you that shall prosper, guys. The gospel question, is he not greater than the boastings of this natural realm? You got giants around you, walled cities. Is he not greater? The three day, but I can't go another step test. You ever had it where spiritually and, um, and physically and emotionally, the depletion all happens at once? You see, it's a bad thing when you, when you lose physical strength. And, you know, when you just sort of lay in there and you're so tired, you can hardly keep your eyes open. But when you combine that with emotional uh, and spiritual depletion, that's, that's a really low point. However, I, there's a picture of this in the Old Testament. David and his mighties, they return. They are exhausted. It's a three-day process that they go through to arrive at Ziklag. And at Ziklag, they find that the Amalekites have taken all their women and children. They can hardly stand. They are so exhausted. And yet they have no choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to let the Amalekites run off with your women and children? And so David exhorts them in their greatest weakness to go fight. And that's precisely where we are. We are at David. The one of the root of David, Jesus Christ, takes us in our weakness and exhorts us. And says, this is not the time to faint. Do not grow weary in your well-doing. Rise up. Let's pursue those Amalekites. Of course, it's interesting because in the, Amalekite, in, the, in the scriptures, the Amalekites are symbolic of the flesh. Don't let that flesh bring you down. Don't let it destroy you. Rise up. And of course, one of the great stories of scripture is David and his weakened men fighting against the Amalekites and defeating them in this story. Three days of total exhaustion, but David and his troops must go on. The gospel question, will he not cause you to rise up with wings as eagles and run and not grow weary? The three day, if I perish, I perish test. In three days, Esther will risk her life and stand before the king. Isn't that interesting? It's three days. She forewarns everyone to fast and, and prepare for three days. Can you imagine what Esther went through in this time? You know, the, there's a death sentence over the uh, Israelites and the Jews at this time. I mean, they are dead men. Haman has already done his little conniving work and King Asuherus has signed it. They're dead. And Esther is going to plead with God. She's going to ask all of the Jews to intercede and to fast. She is about to break the law and enter into the king's presence and make a request. She is risking her life for this. So for all of us, there is an assignment that we have been given. The reason most of us don't accept the assignment is for the same reason someone like Esther wouldn't have stood before the king. You're not supposed to do that. You could die doing that. Throughout Christian history, you know how many men and women have been brought to that point where the world around them or their family says, 
You can't do that. You would die doing that. For the glory of Jesus Christ, I must obey, though. The gospel of Jesus must be carried to the ends of the earth. Yeah, and you could die doing that. What's Esther's statement? If I perish, I perish. The gospel question, is he not worthy of our entire lives? And even if we die, is his cause not deserving of our body and blood? The three-day-in-the-belly-of-the-earth test. For three days and three nights, Jonah is in the belly of the great fish. Now, one of my favorite resurrection morning messages is on Jonah. And it sounds really boring, I know, but it is so exciting to recognize that the sign of Jonah, which, you know, that's what Jesus was going to give. He was going to give the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, you could say it's three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. However, it's more than that. It's three days and three nights, yes. But then that which is so intimidating to the culture, back then it very likely could have been this great fish. The great fish that maybe it was even one of those relics of the dinosaur era. And it maybe it terrorized uh, th- this uh, Nineveh. And yet, I always picture it on the beach with its mouth open, almost like it's pried open by God, and it can't close, and it's lying there dead. And, and Jonah walks out, and one of the Ninevites is standing there, you know, near the, with his boat or whatever. He's like, sees it. He's like, whoa, he defeated the, he defeated the fish. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave the sign of Jonah, that which controls all of us. Fear and trepidation, the grave, death, sin has been defeated. And there is the mouth wide open, the grave with the stone rolled away. The soldier's face is white. Someone takes a Polaroid shot and says, look at this. This is how the soldiers felt about it. The grave is open and it cannot be closed. Is he not the resurrection and the life? The three days are begging an answer. Though heeding your God will cost you everything, though it would appear the enemy forces outnumber you and you are pinned up against the Red Sea, though the waters are currently tasting bitter, though the enemy has walled cities that reach up to the heavens, there are giants in the land and you appear as grasshoppers in their sight, though your fuel tank has run low, your spiritual mustard has lost its zest, though death is imminent and to keep standing strong seems futile and ridiculous, though the circumstances are wholly impossible. Here's the question. Can your God lie? If the answer is no, then let's go to his word and say, well, what has he promised? Has your God promised? Yes. The three days always end with triumph. Let's look at this. This is just an incredible meditation on how the three days end historically. Provision of a lamb, the parting of a Red Sea and the swallowing up of a dastardly enemy, sweet waters, the conquering of Canaan, the destruction of the Amalekites, the hanging of Haman, the spitting back out of Jonah. Well, that sure does sound like the cross and the resurrection to me. That's incredible. Three days. The three-day trial. The three-day difficulty. Every one of us doesn't want to go through it. I get it. I don't prefer it any more than you do. However, when you recognize That this process of being tried and tested and proven is what brings out the beauty of the work of grace. Then you begin to rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all things. You see, this is how we are disposed as Christians to handle every trial we face. Because God has not left us without promise. 
He has actually spoken to us long before we arrived in this dark place. He has told us exactly what he will do. My question to you is, do you believe him? Do you trust him? Like I said, if you were wagering on if Jesus was going to rise from the dead, you'd put everything on it. But what's the difference? Just as he fulfilled his promise then, will he not fulfill his promise to you now? On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. That's in Hosea. What an incredible statement. I'm going to read it again. This is an incredible statement in scripture. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. So obviously, if you need to be raised up, there's something wrong. And he's going to cause us to live. So when I say the three-day test, as many of us would know, it's not always just three days. In fact, some of you go, amen, it's not three days. Mine's been like three years. However, that passage of time, that symbolic passage of time, when you recognize the shed blood of Jesus and then appropriate it through that silence, through that difficulty, and appropriate it unto victory. God will prove faithful. He has not forgotten you. Entering the suffering, and I crossed it out, the triumphant Christ. You see, there's two ways of meditating upon this. One is to enter into his sufferings, which is real. It's important, but I want you to, as we have a resurrection morning, recognize that we are not just entering into a suffering savior, we're entering into a triumphant king. He is victorious. And so though we share in his sufferings, we also share in his victory and his triumph. So, I am in Christ, says the Christian. I am in Christ, therefore his sufferings are my sufferings, his affliction, my affliction, his death, my death, his burial, my burial. But now, listen to this. His resurrection, my resurrection. His ascension, my ascension. His seat, my seat. You see, if you are in Christ, you are where he is. Where is he? Well, he's not in the grave. He has risen. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And all things are beneath his feet. Do you know that as Christians, we are not hanging on a cross. We are not buried in the ground. But the stone is rolled away. And though in this present day, we do face afflictions, trials, and sufferings, we face them with a very different lens on. It's a lens from a very high-seated position. And the reason Jesus could humble himself and face such extreme difficulties is because he knew from where he came. Do you know in whom you have believed and in whom you live and in whom you are seated And if you know that, you can go through any trial down here because you have access, intimate access to the God of all grace. And has raised us up together, speaking of all of us that have believed in Jesus Christ and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when we pray, we pray in that position. I remember when Hudson first recognized this. We were on a prayer walk early one morning And I was teaching him how to pray. And I said, you want to pray from that position. You see, when we pray, Jesus has taught us to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. So we are in Christ, in a heavenly place, at the right hand of the Father. 
So we turn in Christ to the Father. We say, in my position in Christ, Father, and we address the Father in that position. We have access unto the throne of grace. We have access unto the Father. And everything we need for life and godliness, everything you need for every trial, every season and passage of darkness that you will ever face, you have everything you need to walk through it with triumph, with strength, for the glory of God. God's apparent silence. Is he really silent? I know many of you have felt this. If, if you've walked for any length of time as a Christian, you've gone through this. It's extra difficult when someone down the street, you know, that other Christian is talking about God's answered prayer and how faithful God was to them and how either provision came in or healing came in. And in your situation, you're sort of wondering, it's like, hey, God, <laughs> remember me? Yeah, I, I've been praying and fasting and really struggling through this season. You seem to be remembering all your other kids, but <laughs> remember me? You see, if you've had a passage of time as a Christian, there's bound to have been moments like that where you feel forgotten or you feel like God stopped talking. You know, any time that you go into that season, we'll call it the three-day test, it is a gift. I know it doesn't feel like that, but God is working a grace in you so that he can bring about a greater life. He wants to increase life in you. And that increase seems to come through these tests, through these passages of difficulty. And so when we reject them, we lose the grace that is inerrant in them. But when we embrace them and say, Lord, I trust you even when it appears that you've gone silent. Because the devil's saying all sorts of stuff. He's forgotten you. You know, you must have done some great sin. I don't know. I don't think he wants to be around you anymore. And so you have all this noise coming from over here, but you have to hold on as Jacob did to the angel, to actually God Almighty himself. Hold on until the breaking of day. So is he really silent? Here, I just want you to meditate upon this. You see, his word has spoken already. He's already said something before you entered into this dark channel. Listen to what Jesus says at the Last Supper. Now I tell you before it come... That when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Now, technically, in the Greek, it actually is I am. That you would believe that I am. That's the proper name of God, Jehovah. That you would know this. So Jesus speaks ahead of time about his sufferings. So that when he does rise from the dead, they would believe. So when God is faithful in your life, I want you... To remember that he was not absent and that he was not silent. So that the next trial you go through, you will appropriate that knowledge and walk through it with even a greater strength. Because God cannot help but prove faithful. He will show himself strong on your behalf. Your job is simple, even though it doesn't feel simple. You you are a believer. You are one who puts your confidence in him. He will not fail me. What if the devil says opposite? Oh, he's failed you. He will not fail me. He cannot fail me. My God is faithful. Your job is to believe. He said beforehand so that when it happened, you would believe. Now, here's my massively expanded version, guys. 
Now I tell you before it come to pass that when we enter, that when we enter the three days of silence and darkness, you may remember and stand firm on the fact that I have already spoken and I'm not going to change my mind on the matter now. So in other words, let God keep speaking via his word. He has already told you that the tests will come. He says, do not consider it strange, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. So don't consider it strange. Consider it absolutely normal. It is not unusual that this hostile world will stand against you. It is not unusual that you have bonus difficulties compared to your unbelieving neighbor. That is actually not unusual, even though the devil will go all over the place and tell you time and time again that it is. And there must be something inherently wrong with you. You're a Christian. And as a Christian, you experience a greater challenge in this life than other people. And yet, you have capital L life. You have grace. You have everything you need. You have the intimate connectivity with the God of the universe to walk through any challenge you will ever face. You give me a life without challenge, a life of ease, or the life of Christ, and I'm going to tell you right now, because I've had this thought, I've meditated upon it so many times. I ask myself the question, God, if you would give me anything, would I ask for an easy life? Would I ask for a a life without trials? Would I ask for a life without difficulty? I won't. I, I will not do it. I've had so many moments in my life where I feel like God said, ask. And I ponder, believe me. And I, I can't go there. Because I know that with ease comes thinness of soul. And with difficulty comes density of love relationship. With ease and comfort comes shallowness of life. But with challenge and narrowness comes a robustness of living. I have intimacy with Christ because... I have difficulty. I have increased pleasure in my life spiritually. Why? Because I have challenge. Those three days are something that your natural man are not attracted to. But if you will allow God to take you by the hand and walk you through that narrow, dark channel, you will find a robustness and a beauty that you cannot find any other way. The three days crucified and buried test. You see, this was the fulfillment of all the others. And all those other tests could be wrapped up into just this. Are you willing to humble yourself, to acknowledge that you need a savior, to come unto that cross, forsake Adam, and wear Christ? And when you wear Christ, are you willing to wear his humiliation? Are you willing to wear the crown upon that head, the spittle on the cheek, the ripped out beard? Are you willing to wear the nakedness, the mocking, the jeers? Are you willing to exit Adam's fame and renown and enter into Christ's poverty, his difficulty, his trials? Because if you are, if you're willing to deny yourself and pick up that cross and follow, if you're willing to be a believer, yes, there is challenge. It's narrow. It's difficult. But where does it lead? 
it leads to something so far beyond the word challenge and difficulty. It leads to triumph. It leads to the true meditation of the believer. That You can't just focus on the trials and the difficulties. You focus on where it leads. It's the same illustration Paul uses about the birth of a baby. He says it's the travail. And when you travail, the travail is difficult. Now, I've never gone through it. I don't want to speak on what it's like to give birth. However, since Paul talks about it, I can't reference it. Paul says that what comes as a result of that birth pales, causes that difficulty of childbirth to pale and to diminish. We have a difficulty of childbirth. But what comes is life. And that life is something that there's never been one Christian throughout all of history that has ever said, it cost me too much to get the fullness of Jesus Christ. I had to give up too much to get this. There has never been a Christian that has ever received the fullness and the abundance of Jesus that ever for once looked back and thought, oh, what did I give up for this? It so far exceeds anything that we could possibly ever relinquish. So as we meditate upon this resurrection, I want us to freshly consider relinquishing our life. I don't know if you're holding on to something in your life or you are wrestling with God in regards to a passage of time of darkness. But if you're holding on to something of that small, lowercase l life, I want you to choose to forsake it. I want you to agree with God and say, God, you are deserving. I give up my lowercase life so that I can have your capital L life. And if any of you are in that point where you're walking through a dark channel, I want you to choose to rejoice in it. For Sunday morning is coming. The stone will be proven to have rolled away in your life. And all that has held you down, all the berating of the enemy will be silenced. And you will hear the angel choir afresh in your soul. Final scripture. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, he is not here, for he is risen. As he said. He's already said it. Now it's proven. In between is three days. He said it. You're walking through the three days. But just as he said, he will prove the resurrection and the life. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.